This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Good morning. Let me ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I trust the semester is clipping along well for you as the time is passing. Let me just put in a, a plug for our conference. I know, uh, I'm sure you know, since like it's Thursday morning, you're a class that you have to be at Thursday morning of the conference. But I want—I really encourage you to be at as much of it as you possibly can and spread the word around. It is, uh, I think it'll be an edifying time, so that's why you ought to be there. But I think also practically it's a great opportunity for you uh, to meet men that are in the ministry and, and start to build uh, the relationships with men who are already serving because uh, at some point you hope to join the ranks of those. And so I think it's great to, to start to build uh, the relationships that can profit your wisdom, put it that way, right? Because at some point you're going to be, uh, you're going to be the, the new guy and you're going to need help from guys who maybe have experienced things ahead of you. And knowing people like that that you can call is is a part of the value of building those relationships. And so, uh, you know, last thing you, well, not the last, I mean, there's lots of things that could be below this one. One of the things you would not like to have happen, all right, is you face uh, difficult circumstances and you find yourself sort of on an island not really knowing for sure uh, where to, you know, because sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes you need an outside pair of eyes to help you think through a situation because everybody inside of it uh, potentially uh, is, is seeing it in a way that, that isn't as clear potentially as if you laid it out and someone has no attachments, right? They, they have no... Uh, no um, predisposition potentially to uh, misinterpret the actions of some other player, right? Because when you're in the middle of a circumstance, uh, it's easy for you to start second-guessing the motives of other people, <laughs> and, and you don't know for sure whether or not you're letting that second-guessing color your interpretation of it. And laying it down in front of somebody who who isn't bringing that baggage to you can be helpful, all right. So, so I just think practically it's a great way for you to start to build uh, build connections and relationships. You know, you'll be sitting in workshops with them. You know, grabbing uh, the uh, non-alcoholic beverage of your choice at the break times and uh, and all kinds of healthy snacks. And it's a great great way to do that. All right, First Timothy four. First Timothy four. I said, uh, Lord willing, uh, through this year, I, my chapel messages are going to focus on leadership. Last uh, last chapel message uh, really was about. I mean, it, it probably this title gives it a misleading potentially uh, presentation, but that was a part of it was leadership vision, and and the misleading part is we tend to talk about vision as like you know great imaginative things about what we could do for the Lord. And what I was actually focusing on was from Proverbs 22.3, that the, pro, the prudent foresees the evil and passes by, the naive goes on and pun, is punished. That is, a, a leader has to have uh, clarity of vision 
to discern what's going on so that they can avoid mistakes that could be damaging for themselves in the ministry they lead. And so I talked about being able to see the evil by cultivating a, a good sense of hindsight, learning from past experiences of your, uh, your own and others, of insight, being able to see the true nature of things and not, not be naive about it, and a little bit of foresight to have an idea about where, uh, where things are leading. What, I, what are the consequences of the choices you're making right now, and is that really where you want to go? Because I, I, I think, uh, in many ways, that part of it um, is one that I have seen, probably experienced, uh, that people make choices and they're somehow in a, you know, they think they're in an isolation bubble. <laughs> and they can just make this choice and it doesn't have any downstream ramifications. And then all of a sudden they make, you know, three or four decisions and the downstream ramifications are all colliding with each other. Because they didn't think through, well, if we do this, what, what's going to come out of that? And so I think being a, a good leader is that you're not, uh, you know, you're not just uh, with a tunnel vision that doesn't see where you've been, where you're going, and really what's happening right now. Okay, so you need to cultivate that, I think. Uh, today, I'd like to look at one that probably is, uh, I, I mean, hope is a little more familiar and and actually something of a given, but doesn't mean we don't need to be encouraged and exhorted. And that's the issue of the leader's example. The leader's example. I'm not a huge John Maxwell fan. And uh, How many of you, you even know who John Maxwell is? Or there was a time when he was a pastor and, and started doing leadership stuff. And then it, that got so big, he basically left the pastorate and, and kept building the leadership you know, deal. And, and he's had uh, you know, tons of bestsellers. Because he has mastered the ability to say the same thing with a different bif- book cover, <laughs> right? You know, so so he's got the name. He said probably like five different books that were you know unique, and then it's been you know five A, five B, five. You know, he just keeps keeps doing it. Uh, but but he did use a phrase, and I don't think it's necessarily original to him. It's just the one that I think I heard it first from, and it, and it was a simple definition of leadership: was a leader knows the way shows the way and goes the way, right? I mean, a leader has to know where they're going so that, so that they can lead people. They have to be able to show other people what the way is so that they can, they can follow. But then that third component is the one that, that I think sometimes is forgotten. They actually have to go the way, right? A leader doesn't stand here and say, to, for instance, a pastoral leader doesn't say to the church, that's the way you should live. That's the way we should go, <laughs> right? He knows it and shows it only, but actually the, the, the ministry of shepherding requires you to go the way because we're commanded uh, in, in 1 Timothy 4 and 1 Peter 5 that we're to be examples for the flock. That, that is, it's not just that we can tell people what the Christian life ought to be like, what the church ought to be like, but that we are actually are going that direction. And so we can say, I think like, like the Apostle Paul said, uh, follow me as I follow the Lord. That's supposed to be the case. And sometimes, and this might sound harsh to you, but sometimes there is a kind of pseudo-humility that gets advocated that is sort of 
actually encourages people to get out of the way and say, you know, don't follow me, follow the Lord. And, and uh, it sounds great, but the implication is that you're not following the Lord. Right? Don't follow me, follow the Lord means we're not going the same direction. Right? If, if you and I are going to get in our cars after chapel and we're going to, you know, run up to run up to Chili's to go get something to eat, and we've got three cars, and I say, hey, don't follow me, follow that other car. Because the implication is you get lost, <laughs> and maybe I'm running somewhere else, or maybe I don't want you to get a ticket trying to follow me or something. You know, I don't know what it is, but, but something's wrong with following me when, in fact, I'm supposed to be following the Lord, and I should be able to say with the qualifier that Paul has, follow me as I follow the Lord. That is, if I deviate, don't follow me. But my intent is to be following the Lord, and so follow me as I'm following him. And particularly that 1 Corinthians 11 passage, uh, 11.1, I think should be with chapter 10, he actually has told him exactly how he was following the Lord. This is the way the Lord did it, and this is the way I'm doing it. You ought to do it as well. So, so I think we can be humble and accept the responsibility to be examples, right? We don't have to be arrogant to do that, and it's actually probably not humility to, uh, I mean, it's a little bit of an understatement on purpose, right? But it's probably not humility to actually excuse ourselves from a biblical responsibility. It actually is probably pride when we start to be more spiritual than the Bible. So look at 1 Timothy uh, 4.12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And, And I think the first line there stresses the importance of a godly example for people in ministry. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. And, uh, Probably the reason verse 12 says it that way is because of what the responsibility in verse 11 is, prescribe and teach these things. So, so there's been instruction that's been given to Timothy about what he needs to do in, in strengthening the church at Ephesus. And, and Timothy is young. Obviously, we don't know for sure what his age was, but, but there's lots of evidence that this word could be used all the way up into the 30s. And actually, there's some evidence that it could be carried up into the 40s from from uh, ancient ancient writers who used it in in those kinds of applications. the The reality of it is, it's probably not so much um, you know not so much supposed to be you know you've got you've got a window of time and and so you're checking off the calendar as if let's say it goes through the 30s, you know, and all of a sudden you go from 39 to 40. Now you don't have to worry about this. Right, but the point is that that in and and particularly in a culture, and I think most cultures have it to some degree. Right, there is some level of respect that's given to age, and their culture was stronger in that than ours, which has foolishly sought to celebrate youth much more, right, and and encourage that kind of a of a actually a little bit of an inherent conflict between generations. But the point would be Timothy was in a position of leadership in which he might be the youngest of those, and he's actually having to teach and prescribe things to people 
who were older than him, some of whom were actually serving as elders in churches, right? So, so he had a responsibility because of that. And, and what we might tend to do is take that first phrase and, and uh, if we're not careful, interpret it as positional power. Right? Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Turns into a badge to say, hey, you need to do what I'm telling you. Because I'm in the position of authority. Right? And, and sometimes that happens, uh, that folks think the key to their influence is a title or a position. And, and there is something legitimate about that, right? There, there, are, there are various ways in which we exercise influence or have authority, and positional is one of them. And there's biblical warrant for recognizing those positions. I don't think the point here that Paul's doing for Timothy is telling him, so wear your badge. Right? Make sure people recognize the honorific before your name. You know, you're Pastor Timothy or uh, Apostles Emissary Timothy. Right? I don't think he's saying put it in that. What he's saying actually is that, that the key to them not looking down on your youthfulness is you not acting like you're youthful and immature. Right? And that's why he's talking about being an example. Show yourself to be an example. Because the antidote, the antidote to being treated as if you're immature is to not be immature, right? To actually show yourself as an example. I think that's important spiritually because of the issues going on that Timothy was responsible for in terms of spiritual and ministerial labor. He's supposed to give himself... Um, give himself to the task of being a credible influence, right? So his life is, is uh, an aid to the exercise of his leadership versus something against it. And that's, I think that's important in our day because I do think our culture tends to, to elevate personality and ability, Unduly, right? If somebody has a winsome or charismatic personality, they tend to they they tend to become popular and therefore put into positions of influence, right? Everybody likes them, but that only goes so far. And being the most talented person can get you, right? I mean, you can think of all kinds of of uh, athletes whose character was not great, but they could. They could do the job, right? I mean, they're they're a star quarterback or basketball player or whatever. And so when they when they uh, exert influence, people bend to the fact that they've got superior talent, right? Which which works for a short period of time, right? Because talents talents don't have lifelong staying power. Right? Competence is an important element of it, but it's not as significant as character. Right? That, that people actually trust you and, and therefore are ready to follow you, and trust only comes through integrity. 
and and so that's where Paul wants to put Timothy's attention to it and and I I do think that one of the downsides and I I mean I I say this I mean we talked about this in class actually on Tuesday morning because we're working through the qualifications of pastoral ministry in in uh, in pastoral leadership I mean you know our culture tends to elevate very quickly right i mean so if if you're of a certain kind of personality of your certain kinds of abilities and and if you you know if you exceed other people around you 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 know people start to go oh you're going to be you know we, we need to get you into positions of ministry you've got to do this and and what we can do is we can actually bypass the cultivation of character that's necessary for the, there to be a long-term staying power in ministry. And it may be part of the reason why we have so many burnouts, right? They, they, they actually ascend to a position of responsibility for which they have not developed the character capacity to sustain it. And, and eventually they begin to crush under it, right? Or, or because there's character issues, they, they begin to become corrupted by it, right? They begin to take advantage of their authority in ways that are, are out of line. So, so what I think we need to focus on is uh, ra- actually really making certain that our lives are lined up with the ingredients, and this wouldn't be exhaustive list, but, but it's certainly a very important one, of, of what we should be exemplifying to God's people, what, what ought to be uh, the characteristic of our lives. Okay? And, and I think most recognize in these five characteristics, uh, they represent both public and personal life, uh, you can see the first two are more, uh, I think, more obviously in the public realm, uh, rather in speech and conduct. And then the next three, love, faith, and purity, perhaps more in the personal realm. I don't know that we can make a hard, uh, hard dichotomy, but it, it certainly is the case. Public life, he talks about his communication, right? And and we, I think we, if we know the scripture, we know how important that is, right? Speech is a primary mark of our maturity, according to James 1. Right? So it's not surprising that Timothy would zero in on, uh, or Paul would zero in on Timothy's speech because it's a reflection of the heart and an evidence of maturity or immaturity. And so he's saying, and listen, you know, guard in terms of the content and character of your speech, I think you could probably even say as a leader, if I could put it this way, the, the calmness of your speech, right? Proverbs says a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. And, and if you're dealing in a conflict kind of a situation and your speech is not modeled by biblical or framed by biblical truth, then you're not setting an example for God's people. Right? I mean, if you're uh, calling them to Christ-likeness and they watch you speak in ways that are contrary to Scripture, uh, they are, one way or another, going to pick up the idea either that this isn't very important, <laughs> right, or, or that it's actually permissible for you if you are at a certain level. Right? And I, I hate to say this. But, 
I mean, sometimes pastors can be among the most gossipy people in the world. <laughs> you know, they always hear and know what's going on, and hopefully they're not that way inside of their own assemblies, but they all get together and, you know, the conversation can can be the kind of thing that they would find very unacceptable if it were members of their church gathered together, right? But what, what can easily happen is so we're not, you know, we're in a little different category. Or, at times, the display of anger through your words that, that tears people down. I mean, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only that which is good to the use of edification, that it may minister grace according to the need of the moment. And, and, uh, and you're trying to lead, and there's some people maybe that, that don't agree with something you've done, and instead of trying to walk through it graciously, you, you just, boom. Right? Because they're not doing right. Right? What you're doing at that point is you're saying the, uh, the circumstances permit me to ignore God's command. Right? I, can, I can put that person in their place in a way uh, that marginalizes them in the congregation. Right? I tear them down rather than build them up. Right? There's, there's a good way to have tough discussions. And there's a bad way to have tough discussions. And you need to cultivate the right way, the good way, to, to not disobey God's commands in how you communicate and, and how you uh, carry things out. So, so, and, and so what I'd say to you is um, that's something that you should be cultivating right now, right? How do you handle... Uh, how do you handle intense circumstances in terms of your speech? I mean, if you find yourself cultivating a, a, a disposition to have verbal daggers, right? That you're gonna you're gonna do the equivalent, right? Because this is what what happens. I mean, maybe not for you guys. I don't know what you were like, but you know, back in when I was a kid, if you really got frustrated with somebody, you just deck them, right? You're an adult, you can't do that, so you do it with your words, right? You basically get them to shut up by a verbal poke in the eye, and you win, right? And what you have to do is realize that that kind of a pattern is going to produce nothing but, but conflict and damage among those that you shepherd. Because men will learn to talk to their wives like that, right? Because they have authority and they see you exercising your authority in a way that demeans people in your speech. And they're going to start to do that or toward their kids. Or you're going to have people solving their problems in the church like that. And so, so you, need to, you need to learn to recognize that your speech is a mark of your maturity and ultimately, right, your chief means of ministry in the church is your communication of truth. I mean, verse 6 talks about pointing these things out to the brethren. 16 talks about paying a close attention to yourself and your teaching. And, and if your speech 
right? I mean, so, I mean, there are, there are some, uh, you know, there, there are guys that are, are uh, so careless with facts outside of the pulpit that it makes you nervous when they say things in the pulpit, right? Or, or if they're prone to, um, you know, prone to selective use of information when they're trying to get their way in some circumstance. I mean, if you watch that in their non-ministerial speech, you better believe that that example is carrying over to the pulpit. That, you, that, that, that if you're listening and you think that person will use information to their advantage, are they now using this text and the explanation of it to their advantage? Right? Because people, uh, people don't, well, I shouldn't say, normally people don't just completely put a dichotomy between you and your ministry of the word. So you need to make certain that the two, the two are aided by you being careful, right? You, I hope you know you would never want to stand in the pulpit and misrepresent the Word of God, uh, but but you should actually think I don't ever want to be a person who uses information for personal advantage and therefore manipulates it, because it will affect and and there are. Uh, I think that oftentimes, I mean, I've been called in to help churches in some circumstances where, uh, whether intentional or not, whether intentional or not, the, the pastor has hurt himself by careless or um, hurtful speech, inability to control his tongue, and, and it's damaged it, and at some point you have a, you know, the death of a thousand cuts, so that it comes to the point where people people have lost confidence in you preaching, because they don't they don't trust you outside. So why would they trust you inside? Right. So so be careful with your speech. Then he talks about conduct, your customs or habits, patterns of life should be an example of what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. You aspire to walk as Christ walked, like 1 John 2, 6 says. And you're not going to be perfect, right? But your goal should be to exemplify what it means to be serious about following Jesus Christ. That, that his claim on your life extends to every area of your life, and so you seek to live it out. Right? Are you controlled by the love of Christ so that you don't live for yourself, you live for Him? Are you committed to the body of Christ? Right? And I and and I I say this fairly regularly, right? Um, you know, you're you all should be members of assemblies, and if you aspire to leadership in the assembly, you should be thinking about whether you are the kind of person you would want someone to be when you're the leader. Because right? I think it's just, it's just foolish and hypocritical for guys to effectively not participate in their local church and then want to become the leader of the assembly and then get all frustrated when nobody does what... I mean, they, they just like they, they think something magically happens 
I mean, so, so if you aspire to be a leader, the pathway to that is actually to fulfill what it means to be a member of the assembly and, and, and have it uh, build up the, the credibility of faithfulness in that regard. Are you devoted to the mission of Christ? I mean, if, if you desire, or I should say aspire to spiritual leadership, you should begin living like a spiritual leader, right? Have the life before you have the, the, the position. And, and therefore, you, you can be an example because godliness doesn't come with the title. And, uh, I mean, this may sound harsh to you, but, I mean, if you're basically self-centered as a member of a church, you're going to be self-centered as a pastor of a church. Because you basically are viewing your membership as for you. And you're going to become a pastor who basically views the church as for you. This, is, this position's for me. And, and, and the issue is because that's the character you formed. Right? Nothing is going to happen when you get a title on you that's going to change your character. Your same character is going to evidence itself. So if you've lived essentially thinking... I, I, I have no obligations to my church and to the leaders of my church so that I simply do what is convenient for me or what I want to do. I don't do anything because I'm asked to do it and therefore I'm carrying out my obligations as a part of the body. Then, then you're going to be in the same boat over here because you're basically gonna you're gonna be uh, uh, feeling as if all the things around you are just pick and choose, rather than that you have a sense of obligation by virtue of your responsibility. And obligation is actually viewed in our day as a bad word, <laughs> for some reason. I mean, duty is not a bad word. There's something good about doing what we ought to do. So. Learn to follow, then you'll learn to lead. And actually, you'll have a better appreciation for followers if you, if you actually have been one, right? That's why, I mean, I don't think everyone can do it, but, but uh, serving for a number of years as, uh, a, on a staff role in a church, an assistant pastor, uh, really was very profitable for me when I became a senior pastor because I had some level of understanding about what it's like to be the person under a senior pastor's authority and the kinds of decisions that impact and affect your life that, 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 that might get lost in this window only, right? And I think the same thing can be true. I mean, be, be fully committed to your local church, even if what you're learning is what not to do when you're a pastor. That's a good thing. Right? If you learn that there are excessive burdens and obligations being placed on you that aren't central to your growth and helping you serve Christ, then when you become a leader, you recognize that and can appropriately adjust away from it. But here's what happens. Guys sit here and they never do all of those excessive things, so it never bothers them. And they come over here, and now they think, hey, we got to have all this to get it going, and so they have no problem legislating it to everybody else. And the fact is, you just haven't learned positively and negatively from, from following an example 
And so you're not prepared to be a better example, right? And so you need to you need to recognize your conduct as a pattern. Are there people, are there people in your life who are learning currently from following you what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? If you're not influencing anybody behind you, you're not being an example in your conduct. Why should you be put in a position where you have a broader influence? Right? You've not been faithful with little. Why should you be entrusted with much? So, so Paul would urge us to cultivate that. And he uses three words here, love, faith, and purity. I think love, if you, uh, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 5, I think it's the end of the instruction, right? The goal of our instruction is love from pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. So... We should be committed to the well-being of others and, and certainly devoted to the Lord. I mean, are we cultivating a life that has a kind of others perspective that sees what God's entrusted to us as something to be used for his glory in, in ministering to other people? Right? Are we seeking the, the, uh, the well-being of others as the as the pattern of our life, right? Are we a, a person marked by that? And I don't think, I mean, I, I probably beat this drum incessantly, right? But we, we in our culture tend to see love in emotional terms, and I don't think, I don't think that that's the primary way in we sh- which we should see it. I mean, love is defined for us in the scriptures as, so we, we know love by this, Right, that he laid down his life for the brethren. So that's what we ought to do. Or, or here in his love, that God sent his Son into the world so that we might have life through him. Right? We know love because the one who loves sought the good of the object of the love. Right? It wasn't described as some just warm-hearted feeling, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with warm-hearted feelings, but sometimes the display of love isn't coming from ooey-gooey. <laughs> it's coming from, I care about this person and what they need, and I'm going to put that ahead of my convenience at this point to seek to meet that need. Right? And, and, and that's why you can have, for instance, parental love being shown through discipline and divine love being shown through discipline. Right? Because love isn't always just, you know, your you're warm and fuzzy, it's that you recognize that a person needs, uh, they need something, okay, it might be a word of encouragement, it might be a word of confrontation, it might be they just need someone to come alongside of them and help them, but it might also be someone has to stand up and say, hey, this is not right, right, and, and are you cultivating that kind of other's orientation that moves you out of self love to minister to other people are you are you an example of that kind of service faith he talks about trust in god confidence in the gospel and god's goodness to you um i don't think i mean i i think actually i think maybe maybe it's because i've gotten you know more and more inside the bubble of people who are like-minded theologically i don't hear it as much but Used to be all kinds of people talking about stepping out on faith, you know, step out on faith. We did this by faith, and those always made me a little nervous because I think faith is actually grounded on something God said, right? We don't 
we don't just get to make up what we believe. Right? So, hey, we're going to build this $3 million building by faith. You know, and I think what they're saying is we're going to trust God to supply for us. But I think God would also say, don't put the Lord God, Lord your God to the test. <laughs> right. So sometimes people claiming to do things by faith is actually putting God to the test. Right. And, and, and it's because they ran ahead of God instead of following him. Yet at the same point, I think we have to be careful about a kind of life that is completely manageable, right? We're not ever uh, putting ourselves in a position where we know what God says and therefore we see what we think we should do because of that, but it's a little bit from our side risky. So we don't, we don't ever attempt to do that, right? Because, I mean, it would be... It would. It does require trust in God, for instance, for you to pick up your family and and move around the world to do something that you think is grounded in biblical truth. Right? You know God wants the gospel to go to the nations, but you don't have a telegram from Him that says, "Go." But you do have a compelling burden. And then you start to look at all the downside ramifications of that. What could happen? And are you willing to trust God in that? And if you live a life that is fully explainable as calculated personal decisions, I'm not certain that that we're living exactly where we ought to be. There needs to be some component in which we're saying, well, we know the Scriptures pushes us in a direction and we're willing to step out. Just like, you know, if you're talking leading the church, right, there's going to be times at which the best you can do. I was talking with somebody the other day about this. I said, you know, you you don't have, uh, you you really don't have a message from heaven. They were going through a scenario of whether they should sell some property and do X, Y, or Z. And and I said, you know, the best thing you can do is just lay it all out. What are your biblical reasons for pursuing this? And then, and then at some point, put that before the congregation of God's people, and help help uh, everybody make a wise decision, and trust the Lord to confirm or or reject that. Right? And I said that we did a two point one million dollar building program. You know, now it'd be seventeen years ago. And I said to our congregation. Uh, all the way through it, I said, I will know for certain that this is God's will when you vote for it. If you say yes, then I'll say this is the will of God. If you say no, then I'll say God must not want us to do that because the congregation was not affirming of it. But I couldn't stand here and say, I had this vision or this dream or I'm taking it by faith that we should spend $2 million on this. Right now, now that would be perceived as bad leadership by some people. But they don't have to put their head on my pillow in good conscience. And I can't say past what God has said. I think there were good reasons for it, and it's actually proved to be a very valuable ministry addition to us. But, but I don't think you run out there and say, hey, this is God's will. I think you guys are saying, if the Lord wills, we would do such and such. And, and, and so I'm not trying to urge you to be spooky and goofy. I am urging you to trust God and, 
and have that exhibited in your life. I mean, is, is there's going to be a, some margin there where you're going to have to say, you know, the Lord will take care of us. We're, we're going to trust him with the outcomes here because we think this is a wise and good thing to do. And, and that's going to be true when you're trying to size up where you're going to go serve, right? Because there are no perfect churches. There's no circumstance in which you'll find yourself completely insulated from trouble, fully supplied so that you have no needs, that you'll, you'll be able to guarantee it'll all work out well, right? But if you've learned to trust God day by day, you can set that kind of a pattern. Then purity. Moral cleanness or innocence and integrity of the heart. And this is a real problem in our day. Probably one that deserves much more than just the final words of a chapel message, right? But you need to guard your heart and mind against the filth of this world. Uh, because you need to be a pattern in a day in which lax. Uh, laxity with regard to moral issues is so acceptable, right? We, I mean, it might be the best thing if people would call us puritanical. You know, that we live above uh, the kind of moral laxness of our day because people might mock it, but I think deep in their heart they know it's right. Right? They, they in their heart know that the moral looseness of our day is not producing uh, anything of real value. Right? That's why they have to keep chasing after more and more and more. And, and the reality of it is, is that we need to be examples who maintain appropriate boundaries in our relationships, guards against the kind of filth that's coming in, and, and do that with, with real determination. So, so here's here's what I think. I mean, a, a concept that's been deep, you know, pressing deep and deep as I've watched guys, uh, you know, guys not finish well, right? Is that I think we've got to we've got to get the the cart, right, behind the horse, right? And the horse is your life, your character, that you are an example of the believers. And from that, you have a position of ministry. But I think what can happen, particularly, I mean, I'm assuming you're in the seminary because you'd like to be in ministry at some point, it can become preoccupied with getting the position. Right? I need to be in ministry instead of be the kind of person that God wants me to be trusting him to open up the door for ministry and then from that life be able to sustain it. And what happens is people can get ministries because of personality or talent or connections. And if they don't have the life, at some point there's going to be a problem. Right? There should, I mean, there'll be a crisis. Hopefully it'll be a crisis of repentance that a person realizes that they're not, I mean, they've been running on on self-styled types of things, uh, but but if not, it's going to be a crisis of collapse. And so, so let me urge you to 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 make certain that along with all that you're receiving in terms of your education, that that you're not viewing yourself just like as a receptacle into which information is being poured. 
but that you're actually, by God's grace, under the, the discipline and accountability of your local assembly, having your character formed into a life that is an example to believers in these areas. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to recognize that that in many ways, uh, everything we try to build up with our preaching and teaching can be torn down by our living. That often, uh, the failure to be a man of God is the thing that undercuts a fruitful ministry. And so help us to have these things in the proper order, that we walk with you and are being conformed in the image of Christ and from that have a credible ministry of teaching and leading others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Inner City Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.